I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to another exciting season of the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. This season, you'll be hearing music that was produced by Mia. You can find more of her music on uh, SoundCloud and Instagram. There are links on our website. Um, also this season, we're going to be focusing on a new book, which was just released by Oxford University Press, which is the result of years of POMAP's collaborative workshops and features more than 50 authors uh, from our community of Middle East political scientists. It's called The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings. It was edited by me, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Young. And it seeks to present, as you'll hear, a comprehensive take on what we've learned and what the literature has, has engaged with and, and how it's developed over the last 10 years since the Arab uprisings. Uh, in addition to uh, a discussion with the authors that uh, will be featured on today's podcast, we'll also be hearing each week from some of the authors uh, of each of the chapters who will talk about their own deliberations uh, and uh, their own surveys of the fields that they've written about. Um, and there's so many of them uh, that you'll be hearing from about authoritarianism, about protest mobilization, international relations, militaries and violence, political economy and development, Islam and Islamism, politics of identity and sectarianism, public opinion, migration and displacement, local politics. And you'll hear at the end from Lisa Anderson who wrote the conclusion uh, to the volume. Uh, on today's episode, uh, you'll hear two of those chapter segments. The first, you'll hear from Basil Salouk and Alex Siegel, who helped, to, who helped author the chapter on identity and sectarianism, along with Fanar Haddad, Liesl Hintz, Rima Majid, and Toby Matheson. And then you'll hear from Michael Robbins, who will talk about public opinion survey research. He authored that chapter along with Lindsay Benstead and Justin Gangler. Uh, enjoy the program, and thank you for listening. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and I'm joined today by my co-editors, Jillian Schwedler and Sean Yom of the brand new book, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings. This is an unusual book segment. Usually I'm interviewing authors of books, but uh, we are the actual authors of the book. So we're just going to have a little conversation about uh, this, what I hope will be a major contribution to the field of not only Middle East political science, but hopefully political science more broadly and bringing to people's attention um, just how much development there's been in our field over the last 10 years, how much new research, uh, how many exciting uh, young professors and new faculty have you know, been doing this kind of research and engaging with so many different levels of analysis and so many different methodologies. Um, and that, that's what this book was really meant to do. It's, uh, it's the product of, uh, of a conference that I organized for the Project on Middle East Political Science uh, a couple of years ago. And we ended up bringing in more than 50 people organized into a dozen different working groups. Um, and we basically just set them loose to say, what is happening in your subfield, your area of interest? What's the most exciting new research? Which questions have we answered? Um, since 2011? Which ones have we not answered? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And we really thought of it not as kind of a, a scorekeeping exercise, but really more of like a field summarizing type of project. And it's a diverse collection. We really wanted to bring in people who were not all like-minded, people who were approaching things from different methodological orientations, from different country perspectives, um, to really try and um, give the kind of summation of the field that hasn't really been produced, I think, in uh, the last uh, you know, 10, 20 years. And so, uh, Jillian, you know, it was great that you and Sean uh, joined on and helped me to put this incredibly complex undertaking together. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience of working on the book and uh, what you think stands out about it? Well, from the first conference we had, I thought the conversations were really exciting. And we have, as you mentioned, a diverse range of scholars with different methodological approaches, different region, regional expertise. And of course, I'm most familiar with contentious politics and protests, which I contributed uh, in that chapter with some other scholars. But for me, it was really exciting to hear debates among these other scholars working in other collective areas and 
I was really struck by how innovative some of the scholarship was, not just empirically, stuff that I wasn't aware of because 50 scholars, I couldn't read everyone, everything everyone's <laughs> written, uh, but also theoretically, sort of reflecting on the state of debates about migration and local politics and other substantive theoretical issues. And what I was most excited about, and we talked about this uh, together with Sean when we decided to co-author, to co-edit it together, uh, was that in these areas, we weren't just keeping up with current debates, but in some areas really pushing the boundaries and doing new things. And we felt that this volume had an opportunity to do, uh, again, not scorekeeping, a sort of state of the field where things are at, but particularly highlighting in chapters from the scholars focusing on those theoretical areas where they thought they were pushing the boundaries and had something to add to the discipline more broadly. So it's not simply Middle East scholars talking to each other, it's self-consciously Middle East scholars speaking outward to their subfields and to the discipline more broadly. And Sean, again, it was great having you join it as well, bringing in your own perspectives and your own expertise. Uh, maybe the same question to you, you know, what really jumped out at you about this book as we went through the process of pulling it together? Yeah, it, it was great working on the book with you two. And I think that there were two things that jumped out to my mind. I mean, one was uh, the importance of collaboration uh, in our subfield. Uh, when you pull together nearly 50 authors, uh, who, uh, many of whom are not based in North America and particularly in the United States, uh, and you ask them to work collectively on very rich, textured, nuanced chapters that are that 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 summarize the state of knowledge in a field for basically the past generation, um, if not longer, then one gets the sense that there are real synergies that develop when people come together metaphorically, uh, because we met virtually for most of the project's uh, duration since it coincided, unfortunately, with the, with the pandemic. Uh, they When we put all of these authors together metaphorically in the same room and they compare their methodological commitments, they compare their country-based knowledge. They compare the insights they got when they were in the field before the pandemic. And now, thankfully, as we're getting back into the field, those conversations are continuing. Then one gets the sense that there are really rich insights to be mined uh, from the interactions of those ideas. And one of the things that always strikes me as unique about political science is that the collective body of knowledge that we've accumulated, particularly in comparative politics and international relations, is really impressive, but very seldom do we get dialogical engagements where different viewpoints can come together inside the same book or inside the same space. And I think the one of the purposes of our volume was to provide a, one of those dialogical spaces and let, again, nearly 50 collaborators, many of whom subscribe to very different commitments in their methods, in their epistemologies, in their countries, even in their linguistic expertises, to talk to one another. Uh, and that's where I think some of the greatest conclusions uh, were reached. And one of those conclusions, if, if, if I were to think about, say, broadly, this, the, 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 the diverse range of topics we had covered in the chapters, authoritarianism, protest, migration, local politics, political economy, development, religion, violence, et cetera, is that you know, an outsider to the region may look at the region now in 2022 compared to the region before the Arab uprisings in 2009 and 10 and say, it doesn't look that different. Most regimes are still non-democratic. There's still some sort of war or conflict going on. Uh, gender dynamics are still highly imbalanced. Uh, a lot of people are still unemployed uh, and development is still lagging behind, say, the richest countries in the world. Um, one of the synergistic insights that I think all of our collaborators, uh, collaborators can agree on uh, as we got them to talk to each other and contribute to the chapters was that that may be true in the most superficial macro sense. But if you look hard enough, you'll see very dramatic and transformative changes happening beneath the surface in societies, in states, in institutions, in communities that are not readily apparent to outsiders. It takes those who have studied the region for a very long time dive beneath the surface to uncover, say, how have forms of violence and conflict and war making changed? How have authoritarian regimes not just remained static, but reconfigured their own institutions to stay with the times and to continue getting international support at a time when, um, at least before the pandemic, it was quite hard to get global, uh, global support if you were a known human rights violator. Um, how uh, how for how has underdeveloped lack behind say wealthier countries even though that 
certain things in the region, such as class structures, the price of oil, they've all changed in the last 10 to 15 years. So even though, uh, again, to an outsider, I think the region may look very similar to what it did before the Arab uprisings, one of the synthetic conclusions that we all reached together as a team of nearly 50 people was that just scratch the surface and you'll see startling degrees of transformations that are occurring within states, within societies that are dramatically transforming how we talk about topics like authoritarianism, about migration, about conflict. And those conversations need to be conveyed, I think, to a broader mm -hmm. audience to show that the region is not static and the region may be stable in the barest sense, but it's stable insofar that we can still use certain concepts like states and societies to talk about it, but everything else is changing very rapidly and we need to know what those changes are. Well, that's a great point. And I actually want to pick up on uh, a theme from both of your comments about the, the process by which we, uh, we put all this together. Um, so we, we formulated these working groups and then we let the teams essentially organize themselves. And um, it was fascinating to see how different groups uh, did things. Some of them would, each author would write about their own strength. Others really worked as a collective. It was just a really interesting process to observe from the outside as, as it were. But then once we had the initial drafts, we then had the entire group read all the chapters. And that was in one of the most interesting parts of the entire book because suddenly, you would have, for example, the group on international relations see what the group on protest was saying and say, wait a minute, that's not what we said. Or the group on sectarianism and identity politics would suddenly look at the, the chapter on militaries and insurgencies and suddenly see things that either they agreed upon or that they didn't agree upon. And those dialogues, those conversations, I think really helped to shape the book into something more than just a, a collection of essays. Um, I, and that's uh, something which I think really came out as we were editing the final versions of it and pulling it all together. So Jillian, uh, can you give us a sense of, I mean, just looking back on it and thinking about it, which chapters like really stood out for you besides your own um, uh, as kind of exemplars of of the sort of process and uh, pushing the boundaries that you were talking about. Yeah, I agree with your characterization of the debates. And I think one of the strengths of the volume, uh, before I talk to answer your specific question, that one of the strengths is the tying together of these different sub areas. Because as we all in our own work specialize, we're reading only in that one area. And this forced us all to stand back. And as you say, with the protest people to look at the military and political violence chapter and say, oh, that's super interesting. That thread I didn't come up in our debates in contentious politics and social movements. And so I think it's an exercise that's incredibly valuable for political science in general, is these periodics, you know, scoping back the way you do after your comprehensive exams when mm -hmm. you read really wild, widely, where you just don't have the time to do that. So I thought that is incredibly valuable and a strength of the book. Um, for me personally, I was fascinated by a number of chapters, the chapter on local politics and the regional approach to local politics. Uh, I was less familiar that there is a, a focus on subnational studies that's dominated for the last two decades that still sort of uh, privilege the national unit of analysis and the sub is just you know underneath the national. And what this chapter really draws out are different ways of thinking about the local, thinking about um, attention to networks, infrastructure, variations within an urban setting, variations between urban, peri-urban and rural settings. So I thought they really had an interesting way of making me think differently about local politics, which isn't simply on the scale where it's the micro and then you move up to the national and move to the regional and global, but thinking of scalar, different multi-scalar approaches and locating the local politics differently in different kinds of scales. I found that a really exciting and rich discussion. Uh, and with many of these chapters, I flagged for my own purposes a number of their citations in the bibliography that I'm really excited about reading now. Um, similarly, I thought that the chapter on migration and displacement was pretty fascinating. Uh, one of the things that they stress is that we need to not think of migration and displacement coming only out of conflict situations, but something that states through state policies have long produced and enforced and situating the disruption of things like the Arab uprisings in these longer term patterns really changes the way you think about the flows of refugees, the labor migration, et cetera. And so I found it also a very sort of a rich introduction, 
empirically about the region, but also a survey of the state of the literature and their own voice coming through and advocating what are productive future lines of analysis. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And especially, especially on the migration chapter, uh, originally we wanted to frame it as refugees and the entire group came back with a, with an absolutely decisive, no, we, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were, they were completely right. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was, that was actually one of those conversations, which I think a lot of people were struggling with and that ended up being really productive. Sean, how about you? Yeah, so let me preface my some of the some of the takeaways that I thought were pertinent from the volume by saying that uh, one of the one, one additional strength that came from our collective discussions and engagement with one another was that we realized the that, that that the regional knowledge that's been accumulated and honed by our community of scholars interfaces with the broader comparative politics and international relations um, literatures in ways that many of us didn't realize before. Um, I think many of us who worked in Middle East studies and Middle East politics for a while can sympathize with the view that we feel really underappreciated <laughs> in political science. Uh, many of us went to graduate school at a time when we were told <clears throat> we were the lonely outpost of ethnographic, quotidian, and obscurest knowledge at a time when other people were studying other regions. Um, I think Middle East politics for a very long time has also been burdened with the unfair reputation of being too inward looking and not theoretical enough and not therefore open enough to new ideas or to engaging in general theory building or hypothesis testing um, and in general being uh, closed off to the rest of the broader political science discipline. So in, in reading the chapters again uh, and thinking about some pertinent takeaways, I was struck by how wrong that assumption is. I think it's been wrong in the past but I think it's never been more wrong than now, because one thing that resonates throughout every single chapter of this book is that there is not only a constant search for more precise theoretical findings, um, uh, theoretical argumentation, better hypothesis testing, better concept building, better descriptive analysis, better explanatory analysis, um, more texture causal analysis, there is not only all of that in each chapter, but there's constant attention being paid to what are other political scientists saying in other regions? Are our findings relevant, say, outside the Middle East and Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America? Are they relevant to how we think about these topics in the region? And if not, what do we have to contribute to those working on our topic in other regions? So that interfacing with the rest of political science is, I think, particularly true in the chapter, say, on authoritarianism, where one of the findings that uh, my team of scholars uncovered was that there is a very startling drive to personalize the practice of politics in a number of non-democratic regimes since the Arab uprisings. By personalize, I mean there is an extreme concentration of power in a single person, the incumbent, the executive, whether it's a king or a crown prince or a president or a tin pot, a single person tends to hold not just a lot of power, but virtually all the power. Now, the reason why that's so interesting to some of us is that mainstream comparative politics has told us for the past generation, that is a losing strategy, that the best way to maintain what others call a durable authoritarian regime and state is to ensconce power in a complex set of single party or dominant party institutions attached to a bureaucracy, a mass mobilizing cadre, internal party mechanisms, things that essentially supposedly immunize a state and regime from, uh, from, from being overthrown. But that's not what we see in Egypt. That's not what we see in Saudi Arabia. That's not what we see in Syria. And that's certainly not what we saw in Algeria with President Bouteflika uh, before his overthrow in 2019, which I think underscores the more interesting point, even after a highly personalistic president who wanted to run for office for the fifth or sixth time, uh, and tried to disavow himself of any accountability or constraints, even to other institutions in the state that he ran, like the military, even after he was overthrown, other personalistic autocrats like Sisi of Egypt, like Assad of Syria, like MBS of Saudi Arabia, they didn't pull back. They kept on concentrating and personalizing power in their own personhood, which some, is something that bucks the trend, I think, in many other regions. It defies the prediction made by mainstream comparative politics literature 
and writing on authoritarianism. And it's something that we need to compare against the rise of, 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 of uh, or, or the endurance of authoritarianism in other regions like Central Asia, like parts of East and Southeast Asia, like other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, and even a resurgent authoritarian strain, uh, strain in, in Latin America. So that's one example, I think, a really good one of interfacing about how our subfield tries to talk to bigger theories and outside political scientists who may not know much about the region, but we're all speaking the same theoretical language. We're just not using uh, the same cases. I think you could say the same thing about, say, the chapter on public opinion, whereby I think those uh, of our colleagues who do very sophisticated public opinion surveys and public opinion survey experiments in the region have been at the frontier of interrogating very important issues like researcher positionality, uh, like how do you cooperate data from the field, um, how do you calibrate attitudinal data, and when you get interesting data about people's opinions and attitudes, how do you use that and convey that into fungible knowledge that can then be used to test a hypothesis about, say, do young people want to revolt just because they're unemployed? Right? Are young people more or less likely to become Islamist in 2022 versus 2009 or 10? These are loaded questions. Um, and these are questions that I think our colleagues have been at the forefront on in unpacking as important inquiries and those that need a lot of time and attention to fully answer. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really interesting. I mean, I guess when I think about my own question, um, you know, one of the things which I find interesting about the process and how the book ended up are some of the chapters that aren't there. Um, and so, for example, we originally had a working group on uh, women and gender. And the participants in that group ultimately decided that they would prefer to see issues of related to women and gender discussed in every one of the chapters rather than there being a specific research program around questions of women and gender. Um, and that you know, I actually am still not entirely pleased that that was the outcome. And yet, um, you know, it was a fascinating discussion to kind of think through, well, how could a gendered perspective be brought into uh, the chapter on uh, political violence in militaries or into authoritarianism or social movements and contentious politics? And, uh, you know, I think that we delivered on that. Same thing with, you know, one of my own pet areas, uh, media, political communications and the internet and that sort of thing. You know, I kind of thought that is a pretty robust field of political communications that's really developed since um, since uh, the Arab uprisings. But again, we sort of concluded that issues like that could be discussed in the chapter on on contentious politics and on international relations and on you know a number of the other chapters. And so, and that's one of the things which uh, just really struck me about this whole book is that. We were the editors, but there was very little that we did by fiat. Uh, it was just very collaborative and consultative uh, throughout, and, um, and that was kind of interesting. The other, the other thing which uh, maybe that interested me was that we were able to get uh, the conclusion written by Lisa Anderson, uh, kind of I think one of the great uh, political scientists of the Middle East of our era. And uh, she brings a perspective to this of having been through this before multiple times of these, uh, I think she was the one who at the conference first talked about the ritual self-flagellation of the field about every 10 years or so. And, uh, you know, she, I think that we at least partially were able to convince her through the process of this book that um, a more optimistic uh, reading of our field was merited now, and that we actually have addressed many of the, at least some, of the of the issues and criticisms that have been leveled against Middle East studies over the years. I think that our our subfield, you know, since 2011, you know, maybe because of 2011 and how much interest it generated um, from non Middle Eastern specialists. You know, we, we're much better at publishing in, in the disciplinary journals rather than field journals, um, much more, I think, diverse and rigorous methodologically. And as Jillian said, kind of cutting edge, uh, pushing forward theories instead of just using theories that are developed someplace else. I also think that, as, as Sean mentioned, and, and, and uh, I think it's important to note, is the, the diversity of the field as well. There's just been a huge range of 
uh, a huge number of scholars from the region who have kind of come up through graduate school. Many of them were participants in the uprisings themselves, and now they're you know they're into their careers, bringing these perspectives in and uh, really challenging. I think a lot of the ways that uh, we've thought about these things in the past, and that's been I think a real source of vitality and energy in the field. And uh, there's a real sense of community. I mean, I think that Polmaps has helped to build that. I hope it has. Um, but I think that the the book itself is a testimony to the community that we helped to build. But I also don't want to be triumphalist uh, because there's a lot of problems in our field right now. Uh, and you know, the ones that most jump out to me are the, the this neo-authoritarianism in the region is closing down access to a lot of countries to do the kind of deep, immersive field research that I think has always been the hallmark of our field. And uh, there's also, you know, the risk of kind of methodological cubby holes or dead ends where the, what, the, what the discipline demands for publishing in top journals is not necessarily what many of us might want to see as the type of research that we think is the best research. And so there's, there's some challenges there. And I wanted to ask each of you, you know, kind of in your assessment of the field, you know, how do you weigh those, the progress we've made against these very real challenges and hurdles that we face kind of going into the next decade? Well, that's a huge question that could take up its podcast on its own. I guess I'll just say a couple brief things, not in an exhaustive sense, but um, the field has come very far. Certainly when we were all in grad school um, in the 90s and 2000s, you know, we were among the generations really trying to engage the state of the field theoretically uh, from the beginning. And so I think we've seen tremendous advance in the scholarship and it's reflected in this volume, but the work of people in this volume in engaging the debates of the field and advancing the debates and not simply just as you mentioned, applying existing frameworks and say, oh, look, it works in Egypt too. So I think that's a big advance. Um, but for challenges, I think, as you mentioned, there are particular methodological and epistemological trends that dominate only certain of the uh, universities, um, often the most prestigious R1s are at the cutting edge of you know, the hot methods, uh, et cetera. And I should, I should mention that we have people in this volume that do all of those things. We are across from experimental methods to ethnography and interpretive uh, approaches. So we cover that gamut, um, but there are trends and there always have been. There've always been trends in topics, trends in methodologies, uh, when I was in grad school, rational choice was the dominant exciting framework, and that's no longer the case. So I think what's what's important is the scholars here, and we've struggled with this, but we try to for some address these different methodological approaches, but still put substantive political questions first. Still try to say something substantive about the case and not simply, oh, look at my pretty method that's trendy right now. And I think the sort of talking across those methodological and epistemological commitments as Mark and Sean have both emphasized is a strength of this book. And yet, for me, one of the sad things is uh, the environment by POMEPS is not replicated in much of political science. We do treat each other with respect and listen and talk across methodological um, differences and always take the work on the author's own terms and add what you can. That is unfortunately not the case in a lot of political science departments. Um, particularly some that are more competitive, where there's even internal debates, internal arguments among departments, as we all well know. So I think that's, on one hand, we're modeling an ideal way to do research. On the other hand, a lot of these scholars, particularly junior scholars, are going to go back to their home institutions and have to satisfy a different set of, of, um, of colleagues. Sean? Yeah, so uh, that's also I, I also think that's a that's a great but loaded question. Uh, so let me let me let me deliver three quick thoughts: um, uh, a prescription, a challenge, and a takeaway. I think prescription is exactly what uh, Mark you just said about we need to stop self-flagellating. Um, I think there's always a tendency for regional subfields to idealize a theoretical mainstream and to constantly measure themselves by that theoretical mainstream. Um, I think that this has been particularly true with Middle East political science, but one of the, but, but, but one of the, I think, important conclusions our book tries to preach is that for junior and up-and-coming Middle East scholars, stop, stop assessing your research about what you lack or what you may not have compared to what you think the theoretical mainstream may be. 
and instead emphasize what you have, right? And see if you can answer the following question, which I think is a very good one. Based upon the research that you and all of us are doing, what can we explain today and tomorrow that we couldn't explain yesterday about some important puzzle that's happening in a case or a state or a society in the region? And that's a lot of terrain to tilt. I mean, that's a lot of leverage uh, uh, to be had. And I think that's one of the key things to, to remember, to stop thinking about research in terms of what it lacks and instead what it can add to our repertoire of knowledge. I think the key challenge is exactly also what you said, Mark. It's really hard to stay true to the field given the barriers to accessing the field um, that many governments and uh, non-state actors as well have put up to, um, uh, to, to not just researchers based in the West or the East, but researchers living in these countries themselves. I think one thing that Middle East political scientists have always uh, uh, been rightfully proud of is that we have very close proximity to data. We have very close proximity to our field sites by which we field our surveys or we conduct interviews or we do ethnography or we do the archival research. We all have apocryphal stories of meeting one another first 10, 20 years ago when we were all at the same Arabic summer institute in Yemen or Morocco or Tunisia or Egypt and Lebanon and suffering all through the same grammar lesson when we were learning that language for the first time. Um, that's the key challenge. Right? If we pride ourselves in having proximity to data, how do we maintain that proximity in an era where there are those on the ground who want to keep us away? And I think that's something that for the, that the, all of us in the field, I think, have to, um, have to think very hard about. And I think finally, the takeaway is, and building on what Julian said, I think pluralism is a strength, not a weakness, but it's only a strength if we do not assign values or normative, I think, implications to what others study, even if we don't agree with what they're studying. So for instance, it may, I think it's very true that all of us who do Middle East political science exercise very different methods. Uh, some of them may seem to be incompatible with others, but if we view our field as not so much a, an arena where different methods and different, different styles of research duke it out, but instead a repertoire where they can all coexist in the same space, I think the field will be stronger for it. Um, and the more that we publish, then the stronger the field will seem as well uh, for the rest of political science. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, so what we're going to be doing for pretty much the entire fall season of the, of the Middle East Political Science Podcast is we're gonna have a series of conversations with the authors of each chapter, and we'll hear more about the substance of each chapter. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll learn a lot about where the field of political science is today. And, um, and hopefully even more about where it might go in the future. So thanks for listening. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Each week this fall, we're discussing one of the chapters in Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, which I edited along with Jillian Schwedler and Sean Yohm. On this week's episode, we talk about Chapter 8, The Politics of Identity and Sectarianism. Uh, the authors include Fanar Haddad, Liesel Hintz, Rima Majid, Toby Matheson, Basil Salouk, and Alexandra Siegel. We're joined today by Alex Siegel and Basil Salouk. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for having us. So uh, tell us about this chapter and uh, what some of the major uh, insights which uh, you came up with as you were reviewing the literature and figuring out what progress has been made in the field of political science uh, over the last decade. Uh, Basil, why don't we start with you? Well, this was actually a very interesting uh, chapter to, uh, to participate in because we had uh, very interesting and very different opinions among the authors as to how to approach the study of sectarianism. And that made it a, a challenging, but also a fruitful uh, enterprise. Um, of course, our, like in many of the other chapters, our main objective was to show how the literature on sectarianism or the study of sectarianism had developed and to also uh, uh, give some pointers as to what, what are the most interesting uh, future questions to, to deal with. We, we started, there, I mean, of course, there was agreement among all of us on this, but we started from the standpoint that there is nothing really primordial or unique or monolithic about 
sect sectarianism always between quotations uh, and why sectarian politics and sect-based sect uh, political mobilization and conflict had become uh, so prevalent in the Middle East and the Arab world in the past uh, two decades. But that was only a starting point as to debunk the mm -hmm. ancient hatreds uh, thesis and to instead uh, look at why sect-based modes of political mobilization and identification had become so prevalent and to explain the durability of that and also the historicity of that. And so that was our starting point. And we approached this both historically by telling, by trying to tell the historical story behind when and why does uh, sect-based uh, modes of political identification become so prevalent, but also to always emphasize that what is much more important than sect-based politics or sectarian modes of identification are the context in which these types of identities become so important and weaponized. Uh, and, and of course, we engage the theoretical literature, particularly the literature on ethnic politics, to, uh, to justify uh, why we are zooming in on sect-based sect identities, despite the existence of very different types of identities, uh, and to explain uh, the, the ebb and flow in sectarian identities. So we look at uh, uh, you know, theories about the role of uh, ethnic entrepreneurs. Uh, we look at constructivist theories to tell the historical narrative behind the emergence of uh, these kind of identities. And of course, we look at uh, the literature on institutions uh, to link that with, uh, with uh, sectarian identity and sectarian conflict. Now, it's interesting that, uh, that the chapter approaches sectarianism as a form of identity politics, one that, as you say, happens to be prevalent, um, but is amenable to the same types of methods, the same types of theories that uh, political scientists have used um, in a number of contexts to study these kinds of politics of identity. Uh, Alex, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of how we, how you went about approaching the methodological approaches to uh, sectarianism in the chapter? Sure. Well, as we began to discuss our theoretical conceptions of sectarianism, one of the challenges that was repeatedly highlighted is just the lack of even a basic definition as a jumping off point and a starting point in this literature. And so one issue that often arises is sometimes the term sectarianism is used as sort of this catch-all for anything related to sectarian dynamics. Um, other times it's being used basically as kind of a sect-based equivalent of racism or prejudice. Sometimes people are talking about institutional sectarianism and the definitional the definitional challenges that we have mean that there's a lot of measurement challenges when we go to operationalize these complex and nuanced concepts and to apply research designs, whether they're qualitative or quantitative, whether they're descriptive or causal, the kind of starting point of not having clearly agreed upon definitions means that this literature often includes a lot of work that's not engaging uh, one another and not sort of speaking and building cumulatively on itself because scholars are often uh, both conceptually and methodologically studying different dimensions of this and it's not it's not necessarily um, uh, you know agreed upon what the appropriate way to do that is. I think that being said, there's a lot of really exciting methodological advances in political science generally that lend itself really well to the study of sectarianism. And one kind of self-serving example I'll give is I think the um, the conceptual work we were doing highlighted the importance of viewing sectarianism as this dynamic process that involves many different 
actors. And a place where we've seen kind of new innovations is around using social media data to study the dynamics of both sectarianization, but also desectarianization as a dynamic process. And the idea that you can have actors, whether they be everyday citizens, clerics, political leaders, individuals in a given country, those interacting transnationally, whose behavior is all documented and measurable on the same platform presents really exciting new opportunities to more systematically measure and track some of these dynamic behaviors that we really highlighted in the theoretical and conceptual part of the chapter. That's great. Yeah. And so, Basil, you started off, uh, you were talking about how sectarianism ebbs and flows. And this wasn't an empirical chapter. It's not case studies any more than any of the others. But maybe you could talk us through a little bit what you mean by ebbs and flows. When has sectarianism ebbed? When has it flowed? What does that mean for how we think about it? Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that we wanted the readers of this, this chapter to come out with is that simply focusing on sect-based identities or sectarianism does not explain much in the study of the Middle East or, or Arab politics. And to do that, of course, you have to justify uh, uh, the, how, you can how you can study sectarianism by linking it to context. And so again, we tell the story as to where sectarian identities come from historically, and we treat them as historical constructs, but we also treat them as historical constructs with meaning and that they are sticky identities. And to tell the story, of course, uh, means that you have to analyze uh, a whole uh, ensemble of practices that gives sectarian identities their durability. We also try to show, to, to show in the chapter and to tell the story as to why it is not useful to explain politics in the Arab world or the Middle East only from the perspective of sect sectarian identities. And in fact, when we were writing the chapter, a lot of issues were happening in, in, the, in the Arab world, particularly the mobilization around 2019 and so on. And so two, two of the countries that are often uh, pointed to uh, in any kind of discussion of sectarianism, Lebanon and Iraq, are the best examples of why focusing just on sects or sect-based identities is useless. Because we cannot really explain what's happening in Lebanon uh, or what's happening in Iraq only by looking at uh, sectarian identities and sect-based uh, conflicts. I mean, in Lebanon, one of the biggest conflicts is within the Maronite community itself, one of the biggest political conflicts. In Iraq, the conflict is Shia, Shia. And so then you end up having to link these dynamics to domestic political conflicts, geopolitical uh, conflicts. And only then do, can you explain why and demonstrate why you cannot tell the story of the history of the region simply from the lens of sectarianism, because it's not always been a, a conflict revolving uh, around sect sectarian identities. In fact, one of the arguments we try to make in this chapter is, is why uh, political elites, for example, try to uh, uh, depoliticize uh, conflicts based on non-sectarian identities. So whether it is uh, class or gender or regional issues and, and so on. Because their political interests depend on uh, remaining within this sectarianized system. Of course, absolutely. And, and so whether you want to tell the story of the politicization of, of sectarian identities or the depolitization or the desectarian, uh, desectarianization, then you have to factor in uh, elite uh, interest, but also you have to factor in uh, geopolitical uh, context as well. Now, I remember when we were first conceptualizing this chapter, one of the concerns that came up is by simply focusing on sectarianism, by researching sectarianism, you were 
at risk of being complicit in reproducing those very sectarian narratives. Um, Alex, tell us a little bit about how the group of authors grappled with those kinds of issues. Thank you for raising that, Mark. I think it's a really important point in the study of sectarianism more generally. And because this is a concept that gets so much media attention and is used so freely in kind of popular descriptions of the region, there is a tendency, I think, both in sort of policy and journalistic work, but also among researchers to design projects that are intending from the outset to explore sectarian dynamics. And as you say, this runs the risk of inadvertently kind of strengthening or overemphasizing these. And even just from a research perspective, it's not good for science because beginning to ask research questions that assume that certain identities are playing a causal role in dynamics, for example, will cause researchers to miss really important other dynamics that uh, that probably have more, in some cases, explanatory power. And so this is something that we uh, thought a lot about and discussed, but we decided that just because these uh, issues are present doesn't make studying sectarianism not important and doesn't kind of reduce the need for writing a chapter like this. In some cases, it actually highlights the need to do so carefully even more and to really spell out the challenges of studying these dynamics in the kind of current time period and environment that we're in. And I'll add to this that in studying sectarianism in the Middle East, I think there are ethical issues that do exist in other contexts, but are perhaps more salient here. And this is because when we're studying sectarianism, we're often studying conflict-affected populations, populations living under authoritarian or non-democratic regimes, refugee populations, marginalized groups or communities. And so one of the things that we try to direct careful attention to in the chapter is thinking about how to take ethics into account, both when designing research inquiries in the first place, but also when deciding what types of methods are appropriate for answering these questions. No, it's very important, very, very important across the entire volume, actually, um, not just this chapter. I, I guess one last question then is, you know, so after surveying, uh, you know, the literature, what uh, the political science uh, research community has been doing for the last, you know, decade or so, what do you think are some of the most important things that we as a scholarly community have learned about sectarianism uh, through this you know, huge amount of research that we've that we've produced over the last 10 years? What, what are some of the major things that readers of the chapter will come away with? Well, uh, I mean, one of the main lessons is uh, that much in the same way that if you approach sectarianism and sectarian identities as malleable, which is the lesson we get from constructivists, then you can not only think of the ways in which sectarianism becomes dominant or sectarian-based identities become dominant at a certain period, but also how struggles from below, struggles by, by people demanding they, that they be treated as citizens with inalienable rights can also uh, trigger processes of desectarianization, and I think actually this is uh, uh, this is exactly what's happening today. For example, in places like Lebanon, Lebanon and, and Iraq, but also other places, and so this obsession with sectarianism by policymakers for a long time, I think, is now behind us. And in fact, uh, what is interesting is, I think I think people today. Uh, are wary of using the term sectarianism without putting it in, 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 in uh, parentheses or in quotations, if you like, uh, because, we, because we, are be, we are beyond the, uh, the, the stage when uh, uh, you know, sectarian identities could be thought of as explaining a lot, everything or a lot. Uh, now, the, the now political, economic, uh, gender, uh, 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 regional identities are, are perceived as as much more important, and the struggles by people to liberate themselves from 
regimes that want to impose these kind of identities to, to, to and reproduce these identities, I think is, is, is very important. And in fact, we, we mentioned this in the chapter, some of the most interesting projects uh, working on sectarianism in the past decades are exactly looking at this very process. How do you begin the process of this sectarianization? Alex, what would you add? So I, I'm very much on the same page with Basil about this. And I think the one thing that I would add is kind of going through this process of doing such a systematic review of the existing scholarship for me really highlighted how work on sectarianism is often divorced from the broader comparative politics, literature on ethnic politics, and even, even beyond that, work on, say, polarization in the U.S. context um, that is often drawing on a lot of these same theoretical constructs and ideas around social identity and constructivist perspectives on ethnic politics, but these literatures so often don't speak to each other. And so I actually think the model that we have in this chapter uh, and what we do with sectarianism could be extremely valuable to do with some of these other concepts in adjacent disciplines like polarization or, or like other aspects of intergroup conflict. And I think no longer viewing the Middle East as exceptional, you know, as a research community and seeing the value of the insights from this context for the study of politics more broadly is really important. And I think our work on the chapter just really highlighted how central the concepts we describe here are to so many social scientists working on these issues in diverse contexts. Great, thank you, uh, Basil Saluk and Alex Siegel, uh, talking about chapter eight on identity and sectarianism. Uh, thanks for joining us. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. This year, we published The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, a comprehensive look at the state of the field of political science. All fall season of the Poll Maps podcast, we're going to be talking to authors of the chapters in the book to give a survey of where the field is and where we think it might be going. On this week's segment, we're joined by Michael Robbins of Arab Barometer, uh, one of the authors, along with Lindsay Benstead and Justin Gangler, of a chapter on public opinion. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. So tell us a little bit about the writing of this chapter and uh, some of the big things which uh, you see in the development of public opinion and survey research uh, in the Middle East. Well, this chapter is really an interesting group of, of people bringing together expertise in different areas of the Middle East and North Africa. So Lindsay has a strong expertise on issues really the gender and surveys and really the North Africa particularly. I spend a lot of my time working on the, the Levant and Jordan um, and, and around that area. And certainly we have expanded to, to cover much of the region, but Justin really brings us particular expertise in a number of different areas of this as well, coming uh, from the Gulf, working on the Gulf for many years and particularly survey experiments. So really it was an interesting exercise for us to come together, try to bring our different uh, points of view, our different understandings, and really um, do a, a survey of the mass amount of work that has been done on survey research across the Middle East, North Africa, particularly in the last 20 years. And so to, to bring those diverse styles, to think about what does this all really mean together and to, um, to, to have that all come together was a, a great piece of the process of this chapter. So what are the major um, things which you observed then as you kind of surveyed the field, looked at the research that had been done? Um, tell us like some of the things which you think uh, audiences should know about survey research in MENA over the last decade. I, I think one of the real key findings that we've had was that uh, we really have established the ability to do reliable and rigorous surveys um, across the Middle East, North Africa. And that's not a minor uh, piece because there was a lot of questions about the ability to do surveys in authoritarian contexts. Um, and particularly, although there were some democratic experiments, it was still very challenging in much of the region, but there was a real interest. And you think about this, uh, really with the third wave of democratization in the 90s, or finishing up in the 90s, there was a huge, huge amount of, of research and surveys pouring out into other regions of the world, but there wasn't much happening in the Middle East, North Africa. And that really changed starting in uh, 2001, when there was a need to understand publics and understand what people wanted, but it really began um, with a number of initial studies, trying to understand, in some sense, why do they hate us? I mean, why do they hate the, the United States? And I think that that led to laying the groundwork. I mean, there have been earlier surveys. Mark Tesler had done a number, um, particularly in the 90s, of trying to get this going. But there was a sense of, of building this type of work. And I think the initial efforts were, 
were good. They were strong efforts, but it was a challenge to really build the infrastructure necessary. Um, but it did lay the groundwork. And I think that the initial surveys did show a lot of um, important findings, for instance, that they don't really hate us, the majority of, of citizens in the region are not necessarily anti-American, that they don't necessarily adhere to strict Islamic values as a whole. And so it did lay the groundwork, but then it really set up for what you're hitting out here, which is what happened after in the last decade, after 2011, it really laid a groundwork. It had researchers who began to have experience to know what they were doing and um, to, to build on that. And, and so working through that, working through the initial challenges in that, that period led to the ability to really do reliable surveys, ones that could be reproduced, could be worked on by different scholars and have similar findings, which is really a key part of the public um, survey or the public opinion survey environment is being able to reproduce the data, make sure that it's reliable and that we can actually trust it. So I think that was one of the huge, huge advances. And I think outside of the Arab region, we haven't really seen much of this in authoritarian contexts. This is something that in Latin America, many countries such as Cuba are just systematically excluded and other countries it's really been in democracies. And so I think this is particularly important going forward, not just for MENA, where at this point, we really don't have any democracies um, or you know what are standardly considered democracies in existence, but also around the world. I mean, it, it, and a number of scholars are coming to us now talking to us about our experiences working in non-free environments, given the, the rise of authoritarianism around the world again today. Now, one thing when you talk about infrastructure, which I think is very important for the field of political science, is that the Arab barometer that, that, that you work with, um, there's a couple of things there that I think are really important. One is that all the data is open access and available. And we've seen a lot of studies in journals and books that draw on this available data. And the other is how much you've done to build local capacity and doing real partnerships and, and with uh, survey research, uh, individuals, and institutions within the Middle East. I think those are both pretty important things. Well, I, I thank you for mentioning that because I think really one of the key pieces of, of a public opinion survey is the ability to evaluate their quality. That we have seen a lot of surveys that are pretty low quality, but often the data are hidden. You can't access the data. And so it's really hard to ascertain that. And one of the initiatives that I've been working very hard on and a number of people in the field have is to make the data publicly available. So we have some sense of if it's reliable or not and can assess that. And it also makes a higher standard. I mean, we at our barometer know if we do a survey, it will be scrutinized. It will be looked at very carefully. So it forces us to really take that seriously. And not to say that those who don't release it don't do that, but we just, we don't know. And I think making sure the data is available to researchers is, is a hugely important part of the process. We see that with a number of organizations in other parts of the world. And I, I would encourage researchers to make the data public, um, not necessarily up front. They can have the initial um, you know, cut at it, but eventually after a couple of years, it, there's not really an excuse, I think, to, to keep it private. But I think the second point is really something that our barometer has committed to, um, is trying to build the infrastructure, not just for us, but also for other researchers. And it's, it's pretty common that we actually get, get calls from our, the teams that we work with when they're doing a project that they are facing challenges with, just for advice. And, and for us, the idea is to build a network um, of, we are researchers ourselves, we want more data to be available, not just our barometer, but for others, and, and to try and help people work with reliable partners to help those partners understand the challenges and to help them really uh, address those. So we, we even on surveys that aren't ours, we spend a lot of time talking about the best approach, working with them and, and trying to contribute to that to the field because it is such an essential part of, of having this be a, a, a key part of, of research in the Middle East. Now, in terms of uh, MENA scholarship speaking to the broader discipline of political science, uh, there have been uh, a number of methodological advances and um, kind of deep, uh, you know, deep assessments that have come out of scholarship being done in our region that you talk about in this chapter. Could you walk us through a couple of those and where you see kind of the MENA scholarship, in a sense, carving a path for political science in general? Well, I... That's a great question. And I think one of the things that we were really excited about as we started doing the, the background research we needed for this chapter is we realized that MENA has actually become probably a leader in this field in terms of data quality and in terms of some of the experiments, in part because there's been so much pressure that um, I remember when I was first working in this field, people essentially, many people, not all, but many said, you can't do this type of work there. It's too hard. It's too challenging in authoritarian environments. So we really faced a lot of scrutiny in terms of showing that this was reliable. And, and there's been a number of methodological advances uh, we cover in this chapter. First is really thinking about the survey environment. It is something that's a bit different in authoritarian context as opposed to one that's more democratic. And so we've done a lot of research. Lindsay's done a lot of research on this, um, Justin as well. I'm thinking about interviewer effects, particularly how it does this set up? What is the difference between somebody who may be male or female interviewing on issues, who may be more or less religious, who may look like they're coming from um, you know different backgrounds, 
from the, the, the could be potentially a researcher who's doing the surveys itself. And so there's been a lot of research to try and I think establish the validity of what we're doing to show that these differences exist. And I think this is really the first place this was done outside from what we could find outside of uh, the US or Europe, basically of thinking about how are the differences in the survey context and environment. So we really have a great understanding of that to the extent that I don't think extends to most other regions of the world. Um, the second is really thinking about how do we get truthful answers, that there is a sense that preference falsification, as we call it, people not giving truthful answers exists in all countries around the world. In the US, if you ask somebody simply, are you racist, you're probably not going to get a truthful answer back um, from a number of people. Um, so in that sense, this is a problem, but it is something that I think is exacerbated in, in meta because of the political environment. So there has been a lot of experiments with, say, conjoint analysis, wording experiments, trying to understand how people uh, respond differently. And that has led to a lot of... Um, attention and think about where do people potentially preference falsify under what circumstances. And that again is another big advantage of, of the research that's being done in our region compared to a lot of other regions. This is expanding now, but I think MENA has really led the, the MENA researchers have really led on this. I think the final one comes down to, or there are more, but I mean, I think the final major one comes down to data quality. I think the reliability of the surveys we do, we do have significant challenges and, and I've led a lot of research on this as have some others, Justin included, on thinking about what makes a reliable survey. We developed an algorithm, our um, co-author Noble Kuriakos and I developed an algorithm that was looking at the data quality to assess that and in, in the large in survey and thinking about that. And that actually, we realized that a lot of the data, not just from the Middle East, but from other regions as well, may actually not be reliable, particularly in some of the older surveys. And so what we did is we published a paper on this ended up um, actually changing how the American Association of Public Opinion Research and the World Association of Public Opinion Research thought about this. They formed a task force to think about what are the standards we need for surveys in um, around the world, but particularly in, in contexts like the Middle East where they aren't as common and, and some of the standards may not necessarily be as high as the assumption to think about what do we need to do. And this produced a major report that came out that essentially set out a set of guidelines for researchers that's now publicly available for people to use to think about and to think about how they actually conduct their own survey. So really, I think on data quality, on data issues, we have led, um, again, in many of the kind of non-US, non-European settings where research, survey research started in trying to actually understand a lot of these issues and show that this can be done reliably, which is now being used by a number of other projects and, and regions of other parts of the world as well. So moving from uh, process and method uh, to findings, um, you, you, the chapter lays out at least five different areas where uh, we seem to have made uh, some real progress in terms of understanding uh, public attitudes across the Middle East. Can you tell us about a few of those and what you think are some of the major findings that uh, our research has contributed? So that's a really important issue as well. And I think one of the, the key things that we have done with, with public opinion survey research is that, again, it was the Middle East has often been excluded. If you think about Shaworsky's study of democracy, he simply takes it out because it doesn't nicely fit the regression line. And so it has been excluded. And I think one of the things that we've tried to do is show that um, is just test or at least establish does the Middle East fit these broader patterns. Um, and so in terms of democracy, say, we did, and North Africa do say they support democracy. We found a lot of the same trends as we find in other world regions. Think about the context, thinking about the, the supply of democracy, in some ways, the, the demand for democracy and these issues. We can actually incorporate the Middle East into the same types of models on at least public opinion behavior as uh, more broadly. So it does, I think, start to challenge the idea that the Middle East should be excluded because there are no democracies. We can actually put this essentially in the same type of models and, uh, and show that the Middle East is not different in this regard. Um, the same actually is, is one of the things that I think was a bit surprising to us was in voting behavior. Um, a lot of studies of voting behavior, particularly in Tunisia, but elsewhere took off after 2011 in Jordan as well. Um, uh, there's, there's been some studies in Qatar, um, other countries around the region, and it actually shows that people vote and actually behave in a similar situation, even if it's not a democracy, that you can find similar types of, of outcomes that people are choosing based on um, on um, you know the same types of links to to co-ethnic parties, things like that, that they're responding in the same way to some of the stimuli that are existing in other parts of the world. So it also kind of challenges this question about thinking about the electoral behavior in authoritarian versus democratic societies as well. And that again brings the Middle East back into this discussion. And I think really opens up a lot of um, a lot of of avenues to have a, a global model instead of one that is just focused on the Middle East and one for perhaps the rest of the world. In terms of social values and relations, another thing that we focus on, we, we do find that um, 
that basically um, we, we find that the, a number of different uh, pieces here, but that Islam is not necessarily such a central piece that, you know, it can be kind of explained that there are links between Islam, perhaps gender attitudes, perhaps uh, other elements, but it's not necessarily as strong or as, 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 as one might think that this really comes down to more kind of traditional values as opposed to ones that are strictly Islamic. Um, and so I think that finally on gender, we do find that a number of the, the attitudes on gender, and this is something Arab barometer has really focused on pretty strongly, that they are changing. It isn't necessarily changing as, as rapidly as, as we'd think, but certainly even, um, you know, there have been shifts and that this is becoming more equal. And so again, some of the myths about the Middle East that I think existed historically are being challenged by the survey research as people are showing that over time, um, there is a greater inclusion of women in public and private life uh, in terms of equal roles and, and rights as well. So there have been a number of, of important findings that have come out um, of this to not only bring the Middle East into the rest of the world and the global discussion, but also about the Middle East specifically itself. Oh, great, thank you. We've been speaking with Michael Robbins about uh, the chapter on public opinion, uh, who was co-author along with Lindsay Benstead and Justin Gengler. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Mm -hmm.